Welcome to the podcast for Healing Neurology, where we talk about everything that can help heal your neurology, which is really everything from food, lifestyle, and medicine to nature, culture, and politics. There's no topic too big or too small. I'm Jillian Ehrlich, family nurse practitioner certified in Ayurveda and functional medicine. And I have today Dr. Nazinga Harrison, who I'm trying not to be totally obsessed with. But I keep telling her that, so it's an open secret. So Dr. Harrison is a well-respected physician and educator and is the chief medical officer and co-founder of Eleanor Health, an innovative company built on equity and justice that develops mental health medical homes for individuals affected by opioid and other substance use disorders. As host of the In Recovery Weekly podcast by Limonada Media, she engages a large audience on topics related to addiction. As co-founder and vice chair of the Board of Physicians for Criminal Justice Reform, Inc., she leads advocacy at the intersection of health and criminal justice. She earned her bachelor's degree in biology with Spanish and chemistry minors at Howard University, completed medical school at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, and completed general psychiatry residency at Emory University. She is board certified in both adult general psychiatry and addiction medicine and has spent her career treating individuals with serious persistent mental illness and addictive diseases and advocating for stigma reduction, justice, and equity in healthcare. Currently, she holds adjunct uh, faculty appointments at the Morehouse School of Medicine Department of Psychiatry and is campaign psychiatrist for Let's Get Mentally Fit, a public education and stigma reduction campaign. Dr. Harrison, welcome. Thank you. Please call me Nzinga. And okay. I'm sorry I sent you the longest bio ever. <laughs> <laughs> People got to know who you are. This is this. We are multifactorial and you got a lot of facets to what you do and what you know. So you just they all deserve to be said. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get started. I think actually about you is a good way to start. Tell us kind of about how you got interested and like what you do and some of the the pots you've got fingers dipped in. Yeah. Um, I always start the story like it was a cold fall day in September <laughs> in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh-huh. Uh, so I was born in Indianapolis, Indiana and raised, stayed there mm-hmm. for the first 18 years. And the context actually is important. Um, mm-hmm. Growing up, my dad was an electrical engineer by night. That was his mm-hmm. second job. His first job was commander of the local Black Panther militia. My Mm -hmm. mother was um, a public school teacher who then kind of like went up through the administrative ranks and became chief of human resources at the public school system in Indianapolis. And so we were really raised advocates Mm -hmm. from the very beginning, advocates, educators, raise your voice um, against oppression and marginalization and racism. And so I knew very young that I wanted to be a doctor. I didn't have any doctors in my family, so I don't know necessarily where that came from. But very young, I said, like, I'm going to be a doctor and a teacher. And I'm grateful that I had two parents that were like, yep, do both. Right. Like there was no um, child. Do you have no idea how this works? And so I left home, went to Howard University in D.C. for undergrad, then went up to Penn for medical school. And I had the intention to be a pediatric surgeon. And so, you know, in medical school, you have to rotate through all of the various major systems, physiological Mm -hmm. systems. And I was a super vocal opponent. Like, I couldn't believe they're going to make me do six weeks of psychiatry when that's not even real medicine. And I only get to do three weeks of emergency medicine and four weeks of general surgery, right? Like all of my classmates will tell you, I was like, this is unbalanced. (laughs) And holy smoly, I did my psychiatry core rotation as a medical student. 
And it grabbed me because it immediately became evident to me. And this is back to date myself, um, literally in the year 2000, that the healthcare system did not care if people with mental health conditions and especially people with addiction died. And it became evident to me very quickly. And I was like, whoa. And so like my advocacy bone, that's why I started on that cold fall day in September (laughs) in Indianapolis. It was my advocacy bone tapped. And I had this amazing psychiatric attending who was super biological and psychological Mm -hmm. and social. And he was like, you have to be able to understand the physiology. You have to be able to understand how the environment is affecting the physiology. You have to be able to understand how your relationship can change that physiology. And he was just remarkable. And I was sold. And from there... I was like, I'm going to do psychiatry and I'm going to do addiction medicine. And it started as a medical student. And here I am. (laughs) It's amazing. Have you seen the field change? Yes, I have definitely seen the field change. And it's so funny. I feel like it's kind of like the big bang. Mm -hmm. There must have been so much going on for a really long time before you actually got to the big bang. Yes. And I feel like the opioid crisis the new face of the opioid crisis. So the young, fresh, suburban with resources here today, gone tomorrow face of the opioid crisis Mm -hmm. was a big bang Mm. to change the perception of addiction and substance use disorders in this country. Mm. And I think over the last year, the COVID pandemic, Mm -hmm. which made it okay to say, I'm not okay. Like Mm -hmm. I'm not coping well with this. Mm-hmm. has been a big bang mm-hmm. for a change as it relates to mental health conditions. Mm-hmm. Because before the new face of the opioid epidemic, and I call it the new face because for 15 years, I was taking care of poor people. I had to say poor people because that conjures up an image. People without resources who mm-hmm. have been marginalized mm-hmm. in communities that are under-resourced, mm-hmm. people of color, Mm-hmm. who were dying of heroin overdoses. For a decade and a half, I was taking care of those folks and there was no compassion. Mm-hmm. There was not adequate resources, even within the medical establishment, the stigma and discrimination and mistreatment was so high. Mm-hmm. And that really started to change with the new face of the opioid epidemic. Mm-hmm. So I feel really hopeful mm-hmm. that this trend of stigma reduction and understanding substance use disorders, specifically other mental health conditions, as well as actual chronic conditions will put us on a path to better. Yeah. Better outcomes. We need that talent. I mean, we need, we need people back in our society doing, finding their optimal health, doing what they're here to do. That's right. So tell us the correct way to understand and think about addiction and substance use disorders. Ooh, okay. So the correct (laughs) way to think about it is exactly the same way you think about, I'm going to use two physical illnesses that are easy for people to grab onto, Mm -hmm. diabetes and cancer. Mm -hmm. And I'm using those two things. I'll start with compassion. So my personal and professional thesis backed up by data Uh is that compassion, connection, and relationships drive health. And so when we're talking politically, culturally about this country, we are all pack animals, right? And so the way we kick, the different ways we kick people out of the pack, whether 
as a woman, you're being discriminated against, kicked out of the pack as a black person, as a transgender person, as a person who's growing up in a poor community, as a person with addiction, as a short person, as a person who's overweight, right? Like all of the, as a person who doesn't have luscious, long, beautiful, glossy hair, like Mm -hmm. all of the things that we value in this country. And then we bully and marginalize and oppress people along those lines. Mm -hmm. All of those are creating illness and it's creating chronic illness. Mm -hmm. And the way you approach a person who is sick is with compassion. Mm -hmm. So as soon as a person says, I've been diagnosed with cancer, the compassion inflow is overwhelming. The position is, I don't have all the answers, but what can I do to help? What barriers are in the way for you getting this cancer in remission? And I'll do what it takes to help you do that, right? Yeah. If we approach substance use disorders and addiction the same way, we will get better outcomes. Mm -hmm. We don't approach it that way. Mm -hmm. One, we don't even make it safe for a person to say, I think I might have an addiction or I think I might be drinking too much alcohol or I think these pain pills might be getting out of control. Mm -hmm. We don't even make it safe for a person to say that. But then when they do say that, the response is, what's wrong with you? Make better decisions. Mm -hmm. And that response is actually detrimental. It actually drives the illness and make the illness worse. I saw you were going to say something, but so before I go on to diabetes. Well, I was thinking about as you were talking about, you know, when you look all over TikTok and Instagram, you know, when people shave their head for cancer, you know, mm-hmm. the, the most tender moment is when their mother, their father, their partner, their brother, their kid shaves their head with them. Yes. And there's a sense of we are in the foxhole together. Yes. And that does not happen. Who gets in the foxhole with a heroin addict, a, a, an alcoholic, that foxhole is considered messy, dirty, unpleasant gross. And so no one jumps in there, even though cancer is all those same things. You have diarrhea, you vomit blood. I mean, it, you have surgeries and things removed and there's wounds. Yes. And so you and scream it at people. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so right? we have foxholes, we need to just climb into with each other, no matter what. That's exactly right. We need to climb in. And I think one of the reasons we don't climb into that foxhole, and I'm going to tweak your language just a little bit, you know, I'm militant. So you said with the heroin addict, with the alcoholic, the same correction I made on myself a minute ago when I said poor people, because oh, I think yes. it's, we have to be very careful about defining people by that, what is frequently perceived yes. as a negative, yes. right? Yes. And so people with heroin addiction, people with alcoholism, yes. like putting the person first, you can see I'm, all, I'm also working on it in real time. <laughs> the reason we have to climb into the foxhole with those people, or I think the reason we haven't climbed into the foxhole is mm-hmm. because we've been made to believe that it's those people. Right. Right. When and in we reality, label them by the addiction. Right. Exactly. Uh-huh. As I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, If we can, one, start seeing that it's not those people, it's us people. (laughs) Yes. And then, like, also, it's not an addict, which comes with all sorts of conjurings. It's a person. Then that makes us more willing. And, And I think that's really, like, back to the comments I made about the opioid epidemic and COVID was like, this is us. This is my people. This is all of us. This is me. And of course, that makes you want to climb in the foxhole because you don't want to see people you love, people like you 
suffering. Yeah. yeah. Which yeah. is what addiction is. Addiction is suffering. It is suffering. So that's my cancer corollary. That's the first okay. quote, right way to look at it. The second right way to look at it is as a chronic medical condition, diabetes. Mm -hmm. And so we don't expect a person with diabetes who has a blood sugar crisis to have to go. Their blood sugar is so high. They have to go be in the ICU for five days. Mm -hmm. We don't discharge them from the ICU with no medicine, no education, no nutrition support mm -hmm. and say, if you really want to keep your blood sugar down, you will. And then <laughs> drop them off <laughs> in the same neighborhood they live in where there's a donut shop across <laughs> the street from where they live and say, good luck living. Yeah. <laughs> we don't do yeah. that because it makes no sense, right? We don't do that because we understand that diabetes is a chronic medical condition that needs biological interventions, medication, that needs psychological interventions, keep your stress down, that needs social interventions, diet, exercise, food, nutrition, that need cultural and political interventions, even though this is a new way of thinking for medicine, right? Mm -hmm. Making sure you have a support system around you, building your social capital. And we understand that that five days was just the beginning mm -hmm. of a lifelong management of diabetes. Mm -hmm. And we understand that when for whatever confluence of biological, psychological, social, cultural, political reasons, this person's blood sugar has been controlled mm -hmm. and then something happens and now their blood sugar is out of control. Mm -hmm. We understand mm -hmm. that they didn't have a relapse in their blood sugar because they're a bad person that didn't want to have a controlled blood sugar. And then what do we do, right? We make sure they're connected to a PCP. If they need specialist care, we get them to an endocrinologist, but the PCP stays there. Mm -hmm. When they have to go in the hospital again, we rally around them. And when they come out, the PCP and the support system is there. Mm -hmm. And so if you can think of addiction the same way, because it is the same, Mm -hmm. Then you can apply what you're already thinking about diabetes and what you're already thinking about cancer mm -hmm. to substance use disorders and addiction. And then you'd be in the right spot. <laughs> and I just want to go back to your psychiatry kind of revelation. What was it that I, you explained a little bit about you realized that, you know, the system didn't really care about whether people lived or died or like participated in society or mm -hmm. just disappeared. Uh huh. But what was it about the science of psychiatry that held your attention? So I've been a scientist since I was little. Like when I decided to be a doctor, it's because I loved science and uh -huh. anatomy and like learning about the human body. And so the first thing that grabbed me was that I really just had no idea a science existed. Ah, uh -huh. And so that's why I was such a via, a, like a vocal opponent. Like, why are you making me waste my time <laughs> on psychiatry rotation? Because the only thing I knew about psychiatry was Freud. And I'm not dissing <laughs> Freud because Freud had a lot to offer. And I definitely do like insight oriented interventions with people. But all I knew was lay on my couch and tell me about your mother. Mm -hmm. And I had no concept of the underlying physiology and biology. And so in my core rotation, when I was learning about the prefrontal cortex, 
and executive functioning and impulse control and the neurotransmitters that drive that norepinephrine and the motivation, the dopamine pathway, which like helps you notice those things that will keep you alive and help you propagate the species and serotonin and the amygdala. And I was like, holy crap. (laughs) I was like, so you mean to tell me just like there's cardiac physiology, there's brain physiology (laughs) because I understood brain physiology as it related to seizures Uh and strokes and multiple sclerosis Uh and paralysis Uh and Uh Guillain-Barre. But I didn't understand brain physiology as it related to thoughts and emotions and behaviors. Yeah. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) people on the podcast can't see my face, but like I was in awe. And it really, I'll tell you the story of this little girl. And it's, it's, she was 16, so she wasn't little, but it's 20 years later. I still can never tell her story without crying, but maybe today will be the day. Uh She was on this community-based residential psychiatric unit where I was doing my very first psychiatry rotation. Mm -hmm. So I'm like coming in like psychiatry is not even medicine. Why are you wasting my time? This is my mindset. My attending starts teaching me. I'm like, Ooh, this is fascinating. I meet this young girl. She um, is catatonic. So she has a catatonic depression. She is locked in. Mm -hmm. My attending told me and showed me the research studies, even though she can't respond to you, she can hear you. Uh So you need to interact with her every day. You need to sit with her. You need to talk with her. She Uh was getting ECT, electroconvulsive Uh therapy Uh for her catatonia. And so that was my job. As a med student, I went and every day I sat and I probably spent like 30 minutes to an hour with her split up in different blocks and no interaction, waxy Mm. flexibility, blank stare, couldn't Mm -hmm. talk like severely catatonic, had to be fed, Mm -hmm. et cetera. She got into her ECT course. So she's probably like five or six sessions in and she woke up. Wow. And she woke up. Here's where I get choked up every time. And she said, I heard everything you said to me. Ah. And what I was saying to her is like, it's going to be okay. This ECT is really going to work. You're going to be able to go back to high school. You're going to see your friends. Uh. Like, that's what I was saying. I was just pouring compassion on her. Yeah. Yeah. As she woke up and she could tell back to me what I said. And she said, I was trying to talk back to you, but I couldn't. But mm-hmm. I heard all of the nice things that you said. And in that moment, I was like, I'm going to be a psychiatrist. <laughs> like that little, that little girl. Yeah. Got it home because it was like the abject wonder of the physiology of catatonia. Yes. And yes. ECT. But the power of the relationship, like once she woke up, that had been part of her yeah. healing process. Yeah. I know. I know I'm crying. You got to cry too. Thank you. Thank you for getting in the foxhole with me. The Terry foxhole. Yes. I cannot tell that story. That was literally the year 2000. It's yes. been 21 years. It really speaks to how our bodies do sometimes different things than our minds do, what our bodies and minds are capable mm. of. It, we're not just at the surface. You know, we are so complex. That's right. And so with substance use and addiction, there is, we can see 
I, I kind of used alcoholic and heroin addict a little flippantly before because I think that's what we see as a surface. Yep. Yep. But but the truth is is that we are people through and through with where we mm. we wear different clothes on based on how we feel, how people see us, you know. Our identities change over the course of our life. And of course, nobody knows the number of identities that we have inside of us. Yes. And so all of those things remain there, the complexity and the depth, you know. So my 93-year-old grandma once said to me, when I used to visit her, she she would have me sleep in the same bed with her and we'd fall holding hands. And she was so endearing. And she would, you know, she said to me, Jillian, in my mind, I'm the same person I was at 16. Mm. And I'm the same person I was you know, when I was 10 and now I'm 93 and it's like, what happened? She said, I look in the mirror and it's a surprise every time, (laughs) (laughs) but it's that idea that we carry all of that. Yeah. And we carry it. I think people hear us say that sort of thing and they think we carry it emotionally or we carry it psychologically, Mm -hmm. which is absolutely true. We also carry it physiologically. Like everything that has happened to us turns into chemicals and electricity and messages between our physiological symptoms and we carry it with us. Right. And so I think really appreciating the importance of that mind body life connection, like they're inextricable because everything we're experiencing is being coded into our physiology, and then really into our DNA through epigenetics that we're passing to the next generation. Exactly. So how do those individual experiences then become, because what I see in your fascination with psychiatry is not only the individual, but also how do multiple individuals or how does any unique individual play into a social, political, and cultural realm? Yeah, I think that's such an important question. And so I try to think about this, like I say, when I'm convincing medical professionals and and non-medical professionals too, Mm -hmm. when I'm making my case about addiction as chronic medical illness, then I point to the heritability coefficient, Mm -hmm. right? And so if you look at the amount of any illness that is contributed to by your DNA versus the environment, then that gives you the heritability coefficient, kind of like a percentage. And so you look at the heritability coefficient for addiction, and it's between 40 and 60%. 40 to 60% of your risk of developing addiction is coded in your DNA. You have it the day that you're born. The way we modulate that 40 to 60% is with the remaining 60 to 40%, which is your environment and your life experiences. And so when we talk about how do we be part of a culture, a system that helps to prevent illness, Mm -hmm. one, keeping people in the pack because we're pack animals, Uh Uh two, compassion, three, education, Right. Like empower people with the information about their risk Mm -hmm. that they need to know Mm -hmm. for bust the stigma, make it okay for people to say, like, I have a headache. That's perfectly fine for you at work to be like, (laughs) you know what? I have a headache. And somebody will be like, here's some Tylenol or somebody else will be like, here's some peppermint essential oil. Uh Right. uh Or somebody else will be like, are you stressed out? Like, make it okay to say, I think I'm drinking too much. Right. But then also not only make it okay for that person to say, I think I'm drinking too much. Look at that person's family history and say, 
in Zynga Harrison. This is what I tell my kids. I have a lot of addiction in my family. So now that I'm a psychiatrist, I can tell you an even deeper story mm-hmm. about becoming an addiction psychiatrist that is clearly pinned in my own <laughs> upbringing with loved ones with addiction, right? Yeah. And my approach to it the same, like you don't get kicked out of our family, right? Like we're wrapping or we're trying to wrap our arms more tightly around you. That's what I grew up with. And so for my kids who are 14 and 16 boys, remarkable kids, if I say so myself, uh-huh. since they were four, I'm like, listen, kids, mom's DNA is stacked with risk for addiction and other mental health conditions. No stigma. It, it, that is what it is. Okay. Yeah. And so you may have a friend that can do a line of cocaine. You can't do a line of cocaine. Yeah. I mean, you can, but know your risks. The, the risk for you that it turns into a severe substance use disorder is significant based on your DNA. So I'm trying to manage that other 40 to 60%, right? Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to minimize adverse childhood experiences. Yeah. Literally, I sat my husband down and I was like, these ACEs are 10 things that predict the development of chronic medical conditions for adults if they happen to you when you're a kid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of those is parental separation and divorce. Mm-hmm. I was like, our goal is to keep these kids ACEs score zero. So I need you to act right. That's what I told my husband. <laughs> he was like, you need to act right. I was like, okay, we both will. Right. <laughs> oh, but I say like, happy wife, happy life. Happy wife, happy life. Hello. Everyone knows this. Right? <laughs> but it was like arm the kids. And then so yeah. sit down with the kids and say, these are the ACEs. If any okay. of these things happen to you, like mm-hmm. come talk to me and dad about it. Yeah. Right. These are positive childhood experiences that mitigate the risk of ACEs. Try to practice positive childhood experiences. Be that one adult in in the kid's life. Be in the community, you know, generating that sense of community and connection for people. Jump in the foxhole for a person you see with addiction. You know, like that's the way. But it is starting with that knowledge the same way breast cancer. Right. Like we start telling young girls. At 13 years old, do your monthly breast exam. If you have a family member with breast cancer, it's even more important because your DNA has put you at risk Mm -hmm. and you live in, you know, a house where people smoke and that's increasing environmentally, that's increasing your risk, like empower people. And then if you find a lump, holy smoly, tell me immediately so that we can figure out how to evaluate that and get you some help. It's just taking the same approach that we've taken to really manage that 60 to 40% that we have that's not coded in our DNA. And so the things that you talked about, you said the first thing was PAC, focusing on PAC. One was talking about stigma. Do you, is this a list you have in your mind? Um, yes, it's a list in my mind, but I don't know that it's not like I haven't written it down and made it a graphic. So it probably comes out <laughs> in a different order every time, but understand the biology, uh-huh. compassion, uh-huh. Stigma reduction, connection, education and empowerment. One issue I think we can all agree on is that we are really confused in our country about who is in our pack. You know, in this day and age, for whatever reason, it's more about like who isn't in your pack so you can protect mm. your pack. Mm. How do we think about widening our pack and staying safe? Man, that is a deep question and I love it. Um, So I think, and this is definitely cultural and definitely turns into health and illness. One thing is that 
it is difficult to not have to find a pack for safety when your basic needs are not being met or when your identity is being threatened. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. So we all have this concept of fight or flight. Fight mm-hmm. or flight is really about survival mm-hmm. and protecting yourself. Mm-hmm. What we underappreciate is that that is not just physical protection. Mm-hmm. That also applies to emotional protection and identity protection. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's critically important because I talked about the ways we kick people out of the pack. You're too tall. You're too short. You're too fat. You're too ugly. You're too dumb. You don't have enough sex. You have too much sex. Like, yeah, right. All of the ways that just whoever you are or whatever you're doing. And that's another way we mess up is that we equate what people are doing with who they are. And so all of the ways that we judge people for that are ways that we're kicking people out of the pack. And so we have a country full of vulnerable, injured people without that basic need of acceptance being met. Mm -hmm. That makes you in a position of fight or flight that then makes you have to protect yourself against other people. And then even when those other people are not hurting you, you still have to protect yourself against them. And one of the ways you protect yourself is to push people away by hurting them. And it's a constant vicious cycle. Mm-hmm. And so I think at the risk of sounding granola, it really is about like providing for the basic need of acceptance because that basic need of acceptance creates a layer of safety that brings down our vulnerability in a way that we can accept that person's need to be accepted looks different from my need to be accepted and doesn't threaten my need. Mm-hmm. So to use like a very easy example, as a cisgendered person, a transgendered person's need to be accepted, like the fact that you're transgender does not threaten that I'm cisgendered. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I don't have to undermine your acceptance for my own safety. Mm-hmm. We can both be accepted and we can both be safe. Mm-hmm. Right. As a rich person, a person who's rich, I don't have to be threatened by a person who's homeless Mm -hmm. because your safety doesn't have to threaten my safety. Like there's enough safety pie to go go around. Mm -hmm. And I think if we start with that basic acceptance, your circumstances are completely different. Your choices are completely different. The way you think about things is completely different. Yeah. But you can have safety and I can have safety. My safety doesn't have to encroach on your safety and acceptance. Yeah, we need more safety pie. We We need need more safety pie. Safety pie pie for everyone. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we need more safety pie. We need you know, with a scoop pie. with a scoop of acceptance on top, like <laughs> yes. safety pie, a la acceptance mode. That's what we need. <laughs> so here's the inevitable question: Is what happens when what somebody else perceives is going to keep them safe is something that inherently is threatening to you? I'm a Jewish person. I'm a Jew, so as a Jew, there's definitely people who out there who think that I am inherently threatening with my Judaism. As a black woman, if we have to talk about why people think you're threatening, then I, you need to listen to a lot more of your <laughs> recovery podcasts. Like you need to open your eyes. And but just to say, like, what happens when safety perceptions become kind of diametrically opposed? Yeah, and and the most important word that you put there is perception, right? 
Um, because in reality, if you look at the basic things that keep us safe, which is the dopamine pathway, food, water, nurturing, sex, Uh those are the things that honestly, from an emotional and physical survival perspective, keep us safe. There are not many things that man has not created as a perception that have to threaten that safety. So even you look in communities, there's great literature around um, the, the most dangerous thing is disparity. Yeah. Yeah. Not poverty. If you have, you have an in total community that's impoverished, but everybody is in poverty and the sense of community and compassion and you're in the pack and we're here for you is there. The negative effect of that poverty on health is mitigated. Amazing. That's amazing. And so To answer your question, what about the perception that your safety is threatening my safety? I really think of this as just like generational work. It's generational work because we have so many of these perceptions that have been coded into our value set as truth. Mm -hmm. When they're not truth, they're perception. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so Dr. Alana Curry is a, a psychiatrist I super respect. She focuses on complex psychological trauma. Mm-hmm. And she uses this acronym that's I'm done with trauma. Mm-hmm. And I, I won't even be able to do the acronym right. But one of the concepts of the acronym is objective is the O mm-hmm. objective state the fact, mm-hmm. right? Not the feeling, not the perception, not the belief mm-hmm. state the fact. And one of the examples she uses is like a person who's developed PTSD from a really bad car accident. And they think the fact is driving is dangerous, Mm -hmm. but that's the belief. That's the perception. That's not the fact. Mm -hmm. And so if you move to the fact, which is I'm afraid to drive because I think I may have another accident, then that empowers you to look at it more objectively. So Mm -hmm. like when you have the safety perception that that person's safety threatens my safety, Mm -hmm. it's because we think the belief that. Muslims want Americans dead, right? When you look at the fact, which is like 1%, I'm making up the statistic, I don't know what it is, 1% of radicalized religious people, regardless of the religion, want people in other religions dead. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it empowers you to interact differently with that person in front of you who appears to be a Muslim before you even know if they are or not. Right. Yes. So, I mean, I think it really is generational work. It's the way we're providing for the basic needs of the next generation, because you can't do that type of emotional work when you're Mm -hmm. hungry and Mm -hmm. unstably housed and being discriminated against and seeing people in your community gunned down and your adverse childhood experience score is 10 out of 10. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Like you can't do that kind of work because you have to spend all of your energy protecting yourself. I don't even know if I answered your question. <laughs> <laughs> I just keep thinking more safety pie. Yum. <laughs> more safety pie. Maslow's hierarchy, first level. And so like, what? one of the things that we can do is look at any situation from a perspective of if there was an abundance of safety pie here, how can it be distributed? I love that. Some people might need a bigger piece. I love that. And I will still have enough. I will still get full. Yeah. Like if I just ate two hours ago, I just need a small piece of pie just to make me happy because pie is amazing. 
<laughs> but if that person didn't eat since yesterday, they actually need a bigger piece of pie because they're hungry. Yeah. And that's the definition of equity over yeah. equality. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And equity is not stealing something from me that I need. Right. I, I actually didn't even need that small slice of pie. I just wanted it and I got it and it was delicious. And that person's pie was five times bigger than mine. But guess what? My slice was delicious. That is fine. The good enough. How do we find good the good enough? enough? The enough that's good. good. Enough. Yeah. Let's go back to like substance use disorders mm-hmm. and addiction. What does it look like? And I know obviously it's different for every individual, but in terms of thinking about a population of folks struggling or suffering with substance use disorders, what kind of safety pie do, do can we serve? I love this. So I like to talk about the magic formula. Mm-hmm. And like you just said, the magic formula is different for every person. Mm-hmm. And now I might I might start actually calling it like the safety pie formula. <laughs> The magic formula is the recipe for safety pie, right? (laughs) And so when we look at the recipe, there are biological aspects to it. Uh There are psychological aspects to it. There are social aspects to it. There are cultural, political aspects to it. And so the first thing we have to recognize is that if I want to make pie, I can't only buy flour. Uh Mm -hmm. I have to buy Flour, sugar, butter. I don't know how to make pie from scratch. Apples, <laughs> vanilla extract, like whatever else goes in there, right? <laughs> I, I buy my pie from uh, who? Dutch Dutch apple pie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From the yeah. freezer. That's yeah. where I buy my pie. <laughs> I can't just only have flour. And yeah. so when we think about people with addiction, with substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, diabetes, asthma, whatever chronic illness here, I can't only be thinking biologically. So you have opioid use disorder. I'm going to prescribe you Suboxone. I'm not done. That's the flower, right? Mm-hmm. Now I need to look at what have your childhood experiences and early adulthood and adult experiences, how have they formed your view of the world, mm-hmm. psychological, and how is that view of the world driving your addiction? Because we have to get at that root cause. Mm-hmm. That's the butter and the sugar. Mm -hmm. Right. And then socially, like what are the chronic everyday stressors that are putting you in a deficit state Mm -hmm. physiologically? Mm -hmm. Your Mm -hmm. basic needs are not being met. And so you're in a vulnerable fight or flight physiological state at all times. Mm -hmm. Right. That's my vanilla extract. Mm -hmm. And then what are the cultural, political things? What discrimination are you facing? What oppression are you facing? What marginalization? What are the ways we've kicked you out of the pack? Because we have to find a pack that nourishes you and creates that safety for you. That is like the bottom layer crust, Mm -hmm. right? And then what does life meaning and purpose look like for you? And that's the top part of the crust. And we slide that safety pie in the oven and it comes out delicious. Uh-huh. But if we forget to look at any one of those categories in the recipe, you, nobody wants to eat that pie when it comes no, out. Nobody, that is not dessert. Nobody <laughs> wants that pie, right? Yeah. So that's kind of the way to think about it. And what, what you grab out of each one of those or how many you have to grab out of each one of those is different for every individual. But the buckets, like if you haven't looked in that bucket, Right, right, right. You have missed an opportunity. Like some people need a little more butter. Some people need a little more sugar. Some people need a... Totally. 
gluten-free pie. Some people need a gluten-free pie, right? <laughs> yeah. Like I always laugh that I, when I drink coffee, which is infrequent, mm-hmm. I drink a little coffee with my cream and sugar. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. Whereas my husband drinks his coffee black with a ton of sugar. Uh-huh. Somebody uh-huh. else just drinks it black. Yeah. Right. Don't yeah. give me black coffee as much as I love all things black. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Don't give me black. Yeah. <laughs> Don't give me black coffee. Like that's not going to help me feel better. And so talk to us a little bit about Eleanor Health and like how you serve pie. This is really, this analogy is really getting traction. It <laughs> is. This analogy is really working. I love it. So we founded Eleanor in May of 2019. Mm-hmm. And it was for two reasons. One, because we recognize that the pie, the current healthcare system is serving to people with substance use disorder is missing a lot of ingredients. <laughs> right? like it is not delicious. It's not giving anybody safety. Our, yeah. our outcomes are terrible. Yeah. So from a clinical perspective, because unfortunately, a lot of the treatment systems we've developed in this country for addiction are punitive and disparaging. So like you can only have pie if you're not hungry anymore. That's right. So unless you don't want it, then we can. Yeah. You can only have, you can only have insulin if your blood sugar is controlled. You can only have chemo if your cancer is already in remission. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. (laughs) But this is the system that we've had for addiction treatment. And then also on top of that, like you can't have any insulin unless your blood sugar is controlled. Your blood sugar is controlled. That's because you're a bad person with, you don't have good decision-making or you can't have chemo for your cancer. Oh, you have cancer. If you didn't want to have cancer, you wouldn't have it right now. That's how we treat people with addiction. And so our first thesis clinically at Eleanor Health was like compassion and connection and longitude and a relationship has to be the foundation. Mm -hmm. If we understand addiction and substance, other substance use disorders and mental health conditions as chronic health conditions, mm-hmm. then we know when people are suffering, they need compassion and warm arms. Mm-hmm. They also need a longitudinal thread through what is expected to be a long journey. Mm-hmm. We also don't tell people with cancer, you're going to relapse, mm-hmm. even though there are definitely aggressive cancers where we know the risk of relapse is substantial. We mm-hmm. say, this is the risk of relapse. And this is everything we're going to try to do to keep you in the minority, Mm -hmm. right? 90% of people relapse in seven years. This is everything we're going to do to try to get you in the 10%. Mm -hmm. But people with addiction come into treatment and they say relapse is part of the illness. Like Mm -hmm. what? That is not nice. That is not nice. Even though that is accurate, I feel like you could present that to me in a more hopeful way. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So we can say like in the first year without adequate supports, 40 percent of people with addiction will relapse. By the way, that's the same number for hypertension and diabetes and asthma, even though people think treatment for addiction doesn't work. It's the same. Right. right? Here's everything we're going to do to try to get you in the 60 percent. And once you get to a year that falls to this. And once you get to five years, that falls to 15 percent. Here's every. And so. No, this is not a 30 day rehab because we got to get to five years so that your risk can fall to 15% or less. Right. So that's the clinical thesis of Eleanor Health. Dip all those ingredients in the pie. Like we have the ability to support people on those longitudinally over time. The business thesis of Eleanor Health is that 
our healthcare system is about health care, uh-huh. not about health. Uh-huh. And so you go for a service, a bill drops, you pay the bill, and that incentivizes systems to drive quantity of care. Because the more services the system provides, the more financially sustainable the system is. And it doesn't matter whether people are getting better or not. Mm -hmm. That's what I saw in medical school. People are turning in and out and you can disappear. There's somebody else to come in here Mm -hmm. and the system is still going to run. And it doesn't matter to us whether you got better or whether you die. Mm -hmm. And so the thesis at Eleanor Health is that We don't want to be driven by volume of services. Mm -hmm. We want the financial sustainability of Eleanor Health to be dependent on Mm -hmm. people getting better. It incentivizes different workflows. It incentivizes Mm -hmm. different operations. It incentivizes us to be able to reach into every piece of bucket Mm -hmm. to make a delicious pie or to connect Mm -hmm. you to community resources that can help us do that. Mm-hmm. Because if a person falls out of our care mm-hmm. and they go on to be very expensive because emergency room, residential accidents, mm-hmm. their quality of life is terrible. Their health outcomes are terrible. Mm-hmm. Our finances are at risk for that. Right. So mm-hmm. not only does it matter to us because you're a person and you joined mm-hmm. our community and we put warm arms around you and you invited us into your life. And thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Like one, it matters. But two, financially. We are incentivized to come find you and bring you back into the back. And so what have your outcomes shown? Uh, Our outcomes are amazing. (laughs) They truly are. So our outcomes show we practice harm reduction. So we are able to stand for people who want complete and total abstinence from all substances. We stand in that posture with you. For people who want controlled use of a a substance and abstinence from another substance, we stand in that posture for you. For people whose illness is completely in active phase and is severe and controlling use is seemingly impossible right now, but there are other ways to reduce your harm by keeping you in the pack, we stand in that posture with people. So we practice the whole spectrum of care and even with our community members who are actively using and their illness is in the severe stage, Mm -hmm. we have shown 70% (gasps) of our people have had an improvement from their first depression screen to their second depression screen. Wow. 70% have had an improvement from their first anxiety screen to their next. 70% have had an improvement in their drug use, even if that's a reduction. Yeah. Right. Because I, this is what I say. If I have a person who is using heroin IV four times a day, that's four times a day. I have to worry about that person dying. If I prescribe Suboxone and that takes their heroin use down uh-huh. to three times a week, I just reduce the number of times I have to worry about that person dying from four times a day to seven, which is 28 times a week to three times a week. That's amazing. Now, If Nzinga had her druthers, would it drop it to complete abstinence and I don't have to worry about an opioid overdose at all? Yes. (laughs) But will Nzinga take a reduction from 28 to three? Yes, Nzinga will. (laughs) Those are great odds. Yeah, yeah. And so like at Eleanor Health, that's Mm -hmm. that's the care we're practicing because what we're proving is that 
even if we can't get substance use to zero, which is the standard in this country, if you really want it bad enough, zero is the only measure of success. Even if we can't get substance use to zero, keeping people in our pack and addressing those other needs and their safety pie improves outcomes. And so we're also seeing um, at a year, a year after people have been with us, 42% reduction in emergency department and inpatient days. Wow. wow. From a cost perspective, yes. that is massive. Tremendous. Tremendous. Almost, and I'll take the word almost out. So from a cost perspective, that's massive. More importantly, from a quality of life perspective, we just took somebody who was spending 10 days in the ER, mm-hmm. the only four. That's massive. That's remarkable. That's massive. And we have even more opportunity to get that four even to something lower or to get that three times a week heroin use even to something lower because we go above and beyond to keep people in the Eleanor pack. Where are their Eleanor locations? Yes, we are in serving all of North Carolina, New Jersey, the state of Washington, Ohio, Uh Louisiana, and Massachusetts. And I just because I know Ellen, because I know Eleanor, I just want to say as a unabashed commercial that if people call you, you have what's your response time for a callback? Oh, we answer calls in real time. So we actually have 24 seven. You can call us and then we commit to that first visit same day. Same. Now I have to put a caveat there. Like we can offer you an appointment today or tomorrow. I have to put a caveat there and I hate this caveat. And this is how we're trying to change the system. If your health insurance allows that, right? And so we have rapid access. Like we can get you in, we'll get you with one of our peers, like immediately with people who are in withdrawal, we get you with our doctors, like we're committed to that. But the system is built such that everybody doesn't have that access. Okay. And that's what we're trying to break down. Like every, we have um, all of our new starts that come to Eleanor Health, every single new starts, I mean, team members, staff, every single person goes through this training called culture, oppression, racism, and recovery. Whether you're in direct care or not, if you will come work for Eleanor Health, you're going to go through this training. Mm -hmm. And one of the graphics in that training is equality and equity. Uh Uh-huh. And equality, and it's a bent tree, and it's an apple tree, and on one side of the apple tree, there are tons of apples, and this um, little person has a ladder, and Uh they can reach the apples, and the other person's standing on the ground, and there are no apples on their side, so one little apple falls. It's like a sad little picture, right? (laughs) And so equity is like giving a ladder to both people Uh so that both people can reach the apples. Uh But the equity picture is like, ladders, yes, but also bungee cords and slats that are straightening the tree Yeah, and seeds in the ground so that apples are growing across the whole tree for you to be able to reach it. And so at Eleanor, what we're working towards, like we're giving people ladders, Mm -hmm. but the system is still such that the tree is bent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to, you know, give sunlight and water and apple seeds and bungee cords Mm -hmm. and scaffolding to mm-hmm. try to straighten the tree, but the tree is bent. Those are the pieces you start with, right? So as you have said throughout, like this is generational change. It has been yes. generations in the making that this tree has become bent. And mm-hmm. so this is, you know, 
you got to keep the pointy end moving forward. So you see it, you're attending to it, you're working on getting the people who need apples now, apples now, and you're working on straightening the tree later so that other people can get apples sooner in the future. That's exactly it. That's great. That is Eleanor in a nutshell. (laughs) In an apple. From apple trees to apple pies. (laughs) (laughs) The most American thing (laughs) that exists. <laughs> we totally need an Eleanor Health Safety Pie graphic. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Oh, it's great. You mentioned as you were talking safety pie, and I was like, You were like, this is this is I was like, yeah. Never this forgetting. I love it. Oh, that is so great. The last thing I want to just mention, which deserves way more attention than just to mention, but we've talked about kind of the individual factors and ACEs, and we've talked about the pieces, the positive childhood experiences. We've talked about how this transitions or translates into kind of culture and politics and how, you know, when we think about our pack, what threatens our pack, we need to change our perceptions of Mm -hmm. safety and threat within our pack and with those who we initially perceive as a different pack and to recognize mm. our, our really our packness. Can you talk a little bit about your work with the justice system? Definitely can. So I'm co-founder and vice chair of the board of physicians for criminal justice reform. Um, and we started in 2015. So six years ago, and it was a late night Facebook message from a neurosurgeon who came into PenMed as I was leaving PenMed and then came down to Emory for his neurosurgery residency while I was at Emory for psych residency. And so we kind of like stayed close throughout our, our training processes. And he late night messaged me on Facebook and he said, this was when um, Michael Brown was killed and John Crawford and Tamir Rice. And there was just like a whole string of just unarmed Black men getting killed either by police or by citizens, mostly by police. Uh, So there was a lot of advocacy going on. I was posting on my Facebook page. And he said, I feel like there's a role for physicians here. And he was like, maybe I'm crazy, but I'm thinking like a nonprofit, something like Physicians for Criminal Justice Reform. Is this crazy? And I was like, "Uh, first of all, it's amazing. And second of all, Physicians for Criminal Justice Reform is exactly what it should be called. And it's to this conversation we were having earlier, you and I, which is like our responsibility as healthcare professionals is health. And if we can't see the detrimental effect that interactions with law enforcement has on the mental and physical health of people, especially people of color, especially Black people, especially in this time and age, people who are immigrants, people for whom English is not their first language. Mm -hmm. Like if we can't see as physicians that it is our responsibility to address those factors that negatively impact the health of the people we're caring for, then we are not holding to the basic ethical principle of do no harm, non-maleficence, non-malfeasance, depending on what part of the country you're from, right? (laughs) The other basic medical ethical principle is beneficence. Beneficence says we have to proactively seek 
to improve the health of our patients. Mm -hmm. And so we formed Physicians for Criminal Justice Reform to advocate at the intersection of criminal justice and health. And a lot of it is raising the awareness of physicians that this is our responsibility. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you don't have to be a physician to join. If you don't mind, I'll roll straight into a little uh, recruitment call. You don't have to be a physician to join. We need all specialties, all talents. At this point, we're represented in all 50 states. We have over 80 medical specialties and other professions represented from lawyers to teachers to nonprofit professionals to social workers to engineers. I mean, like literally, if you are passionate about health and criminal justice, uh, we could use you. And so it's been a remarkable journey. But the, the charge of that organization is to reduce the negative impact and detrimental health effects that result from interactions with the criminal system. And we're allies to the criminal system. We provide education, support, feedback, consultation. You know, we have that PAC mentality for kind of us and our family, our neighborhood, our community. We can have that with our colleagues, with our professional and personal worlds. And then we need to have it vertically with all levels of our society, which includes that whole political realm from top to bottom. Yes. And that includes the justice system. That's where, you know, we know that laws have been encoded, you know, uh, not in a balanced way, not in mm-hmm. an equal way, mm-hmm. obviously, of our country. And so making those corrections is going to continue to take generations. So thank you for listening today with Nzinga Harrison. We've got lots of ways to continue this conversation through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Please be sure to share this show with your friends. We welcome your rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. And feel free to send topic requests to podcasts at centerforhealingneurology.com. We love that you've joined us today to discuss how to make our whole world medicine. We rise or fall together, and we're committed to doing what we can to make as many of us as healthy as possible. And this takes all of us, including you. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Party Fish Media acknowledges that it operates and records on indigenous Duwamish and Puget Sound Coast Salish land that is still home to the Duwamish tribe. This land is stolen in violation of the Point Elliott Treaty of 1855. We are committed to uplifting the name of these lands and community members from these nations who reside alongside us. For more information on this land, its people, or ways you can help, visit duwamishtribe.org or realrentduwamish.org.